Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In offices around the country, mail has piled up. Plants have died, coffee cups sit unwashed with a really dried out ring of coffee around the bottom. In an office near me, and this is no joke, the lights have been on since March because there's no one around to turn them off. And this might be it. We might be seeing the end of the office. We work with customers across all industries. They tend to be Fortune 100 companies. And our surveys show that about 70 to 90% of people don't want to be back in an office full time. 53% want to return to like a hybrid environment where they're going in a few days a week. Um, But I think that is interesting. Liz Fossling is head of content at Humu, which advises companies on how best to manage and work with employees. And yeah, you heard right. 70 to 90% of people who've been able to work at home do not want to be back in the office full time. Most want some sort of hybrid scenario, so you're in some days, you're home some days, which feels like a huge shift. But Nicholas Bloom says, yeah, he saw this coming a mile away. So if you go from March the 13th to April the 13th, which is the big lockdown period, you go from 5% of working days in America being at home to about 60%. So something we've never seen before. And it looks like much of that's going to stick. And for me, that's been kind of amazing, having spent a decade trying to persuade people to work from home. Bloom is a professor of economics at Stanford, who, as he notes, has been trying to convince people for years that working from home makes good sense. Not that the people who run businesses paid much attention. So, you know, I gave a 2017 TEDx talk whereby uh, I remember saying my next door neighbor in Stanford campus, by the way, is this guy called Sebastian Thrum. He's actually moved, but he used to be. He was one of the lead designers in the driverless car. I remember seeing his talk about the driverless car and saying it was an amazing thing. And I remember back in 2017 saying, look, working from home is a similar incredible technology. And there are a lot of laughs, <laughs> from the audience of people kind of, you know, a bit skeptical that this really anyone cares about it. If you roll forward to 2020, I mean, out of your 100 listeners, my guess is working from home has impacted their lives more than the driverless car, which as far as I'm aware, is not really a real thing right now. Bloom argues we've moved from laughing at the notion that working from home is an amazing technology to seeing that technology in use. Two thirds of GDP in April and May, he says, was produced by home-based workers, which means that home-based work helped prop up the economy And it helped slow the pandemic since many people didn't have to leave their homes and potentially contribute to community spread. So is this the way of the future? What about when vaccines have been widely distributed and people are just not as worried about COVID? We're going to get to that. But for now, argues Liz Fossling from the human resources company Humu, there's a problem. Executives who say things like, I feel like I've lost one of my senses. And so we hear from the leadership position, they don't have insight. They can't just walk around a room, do the management by wandering around, get a sense for how people are doing, make sure that teams are connecting. But then employees seem to like this work from home situation. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Another interesting development is that Nick Bloom, who a decade ago did a widely publicized study about the benefits of working from home, well, he now believes the concept, as we see it in practice, has lost some of its luster. I mean, amazingly, I've become slightly less positive on full time. So just to be clear, what I did and back in 2010 is we got 
uh, we went to a large Chinese multinational. We asked a thousand people who wanted to work from home. Five hundred agreed. This was four out of five days a week, which is close to full time. And then we randomized. So we drew a ping pong ball was born, drawn out of an urn and it said even. So people with even birthdays then work from home. The volunteers for the next nine months and with <laughs> odd stayed in the office. And it's much like the way you trial drugs. You know, the FDA and it authorizes drugs has proper treatment and control trials. We did the same thing working from home, we saw 13% productivity increases. You know, that, that study got a lot of coverage throughout the kind of 2010s. But those numbers seem really large. And now, you know, A, the numbers have come out extremely large. There is an issue about, I think, innovation and creativity. And so while I'm as positive as ever on working from home, I'm not as positive, I'd say, on four or five days a week. I don't think that's ideal. And living through this, you know, I have I have four kids at home. So living through this under COVID is, you know, far, I think far from ideal is like a euphemism. So it's this clear challenges about being at home full time. And there's a lot of mental health issues on the personal side. And with firms, you know, we endlessly hear issues about culture and innovation. So I'm still a big fan. I just am less of a fan of four or five days a week. I'm much more of a fan of the kind of model we hear of firms repeatedly is, let's say, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, you come in the office all the meetings, client events, presentations, you know, leaving dues are then. Everyone knows it's those three days. Wednesday, Friday, you're at home. The CEO downwards tries to go home themselves to persuade everyone to do it. And that seems mm. to be, you know, it's not the only model, but it seems to be a very typical model. Liz, you talked about data before that shows basically managers are like, let's get back in the office and workers are, are like, mm, I don't really want to, right? Okay, so interestingly, on Nick's point earlier about moving away from or backing off of four days a week uh, working from home, we did a study about a year ago now uh, in a call center environment, so really clear productivity metrics, and we found that the optimal productivity happened when people had one or two days working from home. So again, to Nick's point, they could come in, they could have those form those social bonds that make everything else go more smoothly, make decisions more quickly, but then they also had time to go home and do the heads down work that they needed. And so it's interesting that we might actually be moving towards that permanently with this hybrid work from home model. And the other thing which Nick kind of alluded to that I think is really important to remember is that currently we're working from home during a pandemic, which is really different than traditional work from home. So if you have four kids at home, that's maybe not normal, like they might be able to go to school or summer camp. Right. And so we also saw in March productivity spiked in our data. So productivity went up and kind of stayed up through June and also productivity sentiment. However, what happened is that started to decline. And from qualitative data, we figured out that it could also have been because people were facing general uncertainty, but also unprecedented economic uncertainty. Hmm. So it could be that people were really afraid of losing their jobs. And so they were much more likely to work really hard to report that they were super happy when maybe in fact, that's not normally what would happen under those working from home conditions. So I think it's interesting and important to remember the larger you know, world environment when looking at any data from the past year. So people are sent home in March, then you're saying people are sent home in March, and their productivity shoots up. Um, and you're, you're saying like, it's possible they were terrified of losing their jobs, and they were just working all the time. Yeah, terrified of losing their jobs. Also, just emotionally, when we're in a heightened state, that tends to bleed into everything we do. So could be that you get an email and you just respond to it with much more urgency than you would under normal circumstances. So again, there's lots of confounding factors in this year. But 
it's still a great experiment, just useful to remember that, you know, there's pe- people are have their kids at home. Some people have been isolated for months. There's a lot going on for people. Liz, I want to start with you, but I want to kind of unpack this prediction that, that um, you both have sort of made to some degree, which is that how this may likely turn out is that people will go back to the office some number of days a week and they'll stay home some number of days a week. So if I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh, wait, I hate doing that commute. I loved staying home five days a week. And I've definitely heard that from people. Um, Are you saying that probably in the future I am going to go into the office two, three days a week? Liz, do you want to take that? Do you think that is indeed going to happen? Sure. Yeah, I think that's most likely to be what happens. But to your point, I so I live in San Francisco, used to commute down to Mountain View is about two hours a day. And I love not having that commute, even Mm. though I also liked being in the office. So I definitely hear that um, counterpoint. But I think one of the things that leaders should consider uh, when bringing people back into the office is that there should be a really clear reason why you need to come back into the office. Because like you've said, now we've seen I can do my job at home and maybe it's more stressful because there's kids at home. But if they're going to be in school, it's just possible. I think the world of possibilities has opened up a lot more. And so giving people a really compelling reason for why it's good to come back into the office. And so I would encourage leaders to think more creatively. So instead of saying the engineering team should be in the office Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, instead thinking, well, what are some cross-functional teams that would really benefit from that in-person time to make decisions? How can we use the time in person to talk about performance, to have these potentially difficult emotional conversations that just go much more smoothly when you're in person? This is good for team bonding. So having compelling reasons beyond just saying, for arbitrary reasons, these teams come in on Monday, these teams come in on Tuesday. I think that's going to be a much harder sell to employees. Okay. And Nick, do you, do you see a world, if we were to look out, you know, three, four, five years, and, and the issue of COVID was not so much a, the present issue that it is right now, do you see it as more of a 50-50 split that you're in the office maybe half the time, out of the office half of the time at home? Yes, definitely. So, I'll go through some. I'm very aligned with Liz, by the way, but I'll just go through some numbers. I guess it's helpful that we're getting data from different sources. So we've been surveying two and a half thousand Americans a month, but we've also run a separate survey of around a thousand firms. And what you see is there's a kind of two part world. So there's about half of employees out there that cannot work from home. So they tend to be people with uh, they're overwhelmingly people that left school at kind of 16 to 18 or done a bit of college. They tend to have more, you know, retail jobs or manual jobs. They're basically people that have to come in every day. So for them, they're going to have to keep coming in every day and really nothing is going to change. And a lot of CEOs have talked about this group being, you know, not enjoying the benefits of working from home. Then the other half, which is, you know, us and probably most listeners are people who are typically university graduates are doing professional managerial jobs. And they are almost all working from home full time, or at least were in April and May. Very few of them have gone back to work now. If you look at the plans for these employees, by far the most common plan is they'll be back in the office for three days a week. And as Liz said, the, you know, you've got to have a reason. And the three reasons that get offered is firstly innovation, number one. People say you've, you know, the old Steve Jobs quote about, you know, all this uh, random bumping into in the office or ideas mm-hmm. coming up over the water cooler. The second issue that comes up a lot is like motivation and loyalty. 
You kind of want, you know, company culture, motivation, intangible connection to the firm. And then the third is people raise a lot is actually about employee mental health. I've had several execs be concerned about depression of employees being left at home. So if you put it all together, in terms of raw data, what we see is before the pandemic, 5% of working days in America are from home. During the very worst of the pandemic in April, May, it was about 60%. And we're slowly sliding back into a long run level of about 20 to 25%, which is comprised of half of the population that can work from home are doing that half the time, and the other half aren't doing it at all. And that is seems to be pretty clearly going to stick. So there is a kind of structural seismic shift. We're way above long run levels now, but we're going to go back post-COVID to something like five times as much working from home post-COVID as there ever was pre-COVID. I'll just uh, play devil's advocate for both of you, but I'm interested in what you, how you think about this scenario. So let's say you do have a scenario in which maybe some people go back every day because they're like, I can't wait to get back to the office. But other people think, well, I have a long commute. That's no fun. Um, I want to spend more time with my kids. I, I'm very productive at home and, and I, I want to do that a good chunk of the time. So they go in some of the time, they stay home some of the time. Well, if the people who go in all the time end up, let's say, bumping into the boss more because they're around and they kind of, you know, bend the boss's ear with like a story about X, Y, Z. And the boss remembers that because they bumped into that person and that person or those people who are in the office get treated better. They get more um, promotions, right, because they have like the advantage of physically being there. Do you backslide into a situation where eventually everybody's in the office because the people are at home, they never get those serendipitous meetings like in the hallway? So I'm going to, you know, start off by uh, building a point Liz made earlier, which is it's very clear in our survey data what people want to do varies enormously. So we ask people post COVID, how many days a week would you want to work from home? And 20 yes. percent of people in our survey say basically never they tend to be young, single people living in small apartments. You know, it's very mm. cooped up and they want to get out of their apartment every day. And then there's 25% that look a lot more like demographics, I guess, like me, you know, older with kids living in a house. You know, I have to say, I don't want to work from home every day, but there is a group of people that do. So on that basis, you think, well, look, why not let people choose? The problem is, as you point out, that if you're in the office every day and the boss is in the office every day and your colleague is not, you're going to likely do better in promotion. In fact, in the right. study in China that we published, what, six, seven years ago, we saw almost double rate of promotion of people that were randomly chosen to be in the office versus those that were randomized to home. So there's a massive, very observable in the data difference. So because of that, my view is, and you've seen it in a number of firms, this is one of the times I would probably overrule choice. And the reason is, I fear that if you're a firm and you let people choose, you could easily subtly end up with a problem whereby certain groups, you know, minorities, religious groups, people with kids, younger, older people opt to work from home more and end up getting promoted less. And, you know, mm. you've got an issue of diversity in the workplace and also more subtly, you know, potential legal threats for discrimination. So I think much like, for example, you know, Quora and other firms have said, if you are going to set up a policy, you pretty much want to impose that these days are in the office for everyone and these days are at home for everyone, or at least the senior management goes home. So if the CEO and the senior managers are all at home, you know, young juniors can maybe choose to come in, but it means it doesn't give them a promotional advantage and doesn't stress everyone out. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We're looking at the future of the office. Is it finished? Are you ever going to ride that elevator at work again? And what do CEOs have planned for their employees over the next year or two? We're going to come right back after a quick break with Liz Fossling from Humu and Nicholas Bloom from Stanford. From GBH and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When you think about the many aspects of life that coronavirus has upended, one of the biggest is work. We've seen huge layoffs and major adjustments for people who continue to physically go to work, from bus drivers to hygienists. But for millions of Americans who left offices in March and were sent home to wait, a very big question looms as we get closer to a vaccine. What's next? And what I've been discussing a lot with serious execs is kind of they want to get their mind around long run. And often that's relatively fast to do because it seems pretty clear for those that can, we're going to go to something like two days a week working from home. Nicholas Bloom is an economist at Stanford who has spent years advocating for more folks to work from home. And he thinks that is, in fact, what's coming. He believes in many offices you'll be in probably three days a week and home two days a week. But this work from home experiment has turned out to be more than he bargained for. Actually, more than lots of us bargained for. I think we're already seeing women uh, withdrawing from the labor force at higher rates than men currently, because again, you know, they are tasked with or feel obligated, whatever it might be, to take care of the kids and then have the man keep working or the husband. Liz Fossling is head of content at Humu, which advises companies on motivation and performance using science-based research. Indeed, women are exiting the workforce in droves after close to 50 years of massive gains and parity with men earlier this year. In September, when school started, more than 900,000 women dropped out of the workforce. That compares with about 200,000 men. And there are other problems, Fossline says. So I think even in terms of whether or not we're well set up for working from home, there's large differences in that. Um, Not to mention, if you're isolated, that can lead to depression. Nick Bloom argues that these various sorts of hardships and inequalities have led to simmering issues inside organizations. And they're likely there, he says, even if managers haven't noticed them and even if no one is talking about them. So you've seen in a number of tech firms, I've also heard this has come up, you know, within Stanford, that imagine you have five people in a team and three of them have young kids that are at home. For example, all of my kids are right now at home because the schools haven't really gone back. And it's much harder to work. And then you have another two that don't. Should you, you know, reallocate work across the group to make it a bit fairer? Or on the other hand, maybe you should say, well, look, you know, it's your choice to have kids. And It's tricky. I'd say mostly what I've seen is there's been some reallocation and it's not perfect. And it's it's a struggle because people without children are saying, look, why should I take on board more work? And then you say, well, look, it's only reasonable because who could have predicted this would have happened? And your colleagues are in a very difficult situation. This thing bounces backwards and forwards. But a lot of organizations are starting to have kind of explicit discussions about how much some people should stand in to support colleagues and for the first, you know, two, three months, everyone is very willing to stand and support colleagues. Mm-hmm. But you're having situations now where people are doing like 12 hour days 
to basically support colleagues. And they've been doing that for months on end and they're starting to feel, you know, pretty peed off about it. And I don't have a great solution for this. I mean, when the schools go back, a lot of this issue resolves, but that's not happening too quickly. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, I can completely understand that. I mean, I, I have young kids, but obviously, if you've got young kids at home and they've got no child care, you're in a, a, a world of trouble. And then if if you do, if you don't have kids and you're stepping up and you do that for a week, OK, a month, OK, but like two years or a year and a half. Boy, that seems like a long time to be stepping up. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories. It's not maybe my suggestion, but a few people have told me they start to have conversations with people that really can't step up and say, look, if you can't do your full job, do you want to go, you know, 80 percent pay? It seems kind of tricky. I mean, I personally wouldn't be taking that line. My productivity is definitely well down from having, you know, uh, kids coming in. I think younger kids are far harder. My oldest two in high school, my oldest is five. But the older two kind of get on with whatever version of online learning there is. But it is a really difficult problem. And, uh, you know, it's the first step as a a manager, at least to be aware that it's going on. I mean, on Internet, another issue is in our survey. It turns out 90 percent of people have pretty good Internet at home. But only 65% of them them say that internet is good enough to support video calls. So Mm. there are a lot of people that before COVID would have home internet tethered to a cell phone, which is kind of fine for a lot of stuff. You know, even for watching movies, you can download it with a bit of a lag. You can buffer it. But for video calls, you know, for Zoom, it doesn't work that well. And so this is another issue that's coming up is particularly rural parts of the country or lower income households have relied on kind of low quality connections. And this is turning out to be extremely difficult to work. And they're at a big structural disadvantage during a meeting and they're the one that's flaking in and out all the time. And so this is another source of uh, patience, but you know, raising issues about how do you address this? And I've heard some firms are paying to install proper broadband at their employees' homes. Then of course the employees are already paid for it themselves are upset. I mean, there's, there's a number of things that at the yeah. first step, I think is being aware of them. There are no perfect solutions, but at least understanding the problem gets you halfway there. A Uh, couple of things. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Liz. Uh, Everyone is struggling right now with something. And I Mm -hmm. will say personally, I was on a call with someone I was working on a project with, not at my company, but at a different one. And she, I've worked with her before, absolutely wonderful. And she had a toddler on her lap who just screamed for the entire (laughs) call. And I will say that gave me a lot of empathy and I don't have children myself, but I was like, okay, so it's not the parents are kicking back and just, you know, not doing as much work. They're really, really struggling. And I would actually, right now, I would rather edit this memo for 20 more minutes than maybe have the screaming toddler on my lap. Uh, That's my personal decision. But I do think that having conversations It's really easy when you're not in person to forget that there's a human on the other end of that email or on the, you know, who's editing the Google Doc with you. And so making sure you're investing in that connectivity piece. And that is these really small actions. It's the saying thank you, expressing gratitude, you know, having your camera on when you're having human conversations, small things like that. And of course, the camera on, you need good Wi-Fi. So the companies should be paying for that. But I think that it's easy to forget to do those small things, especially when you're just in remote, like get everything done mode. And I'll ask both of you a final question. Liz, I'll start with you. As things unfold over the next year or two, hopefully um, we get better ways to deal with COVID. And obviously this becomes something that 
moves from a short-term issue with workplaces to, I mean, a long-term issue. Um, what is something that you are most going to keep your eye on, whether it's something that worries you, something that is interesting to you? Like, what, what are you going to be looking at? Yeah, I, for me, I would be looking really carefully at sentiment among new hires. Uh, so how are they feeling? And then really thinking through onboarding processes. So there's clear data that shows that new hires are having a rougher time than they used to. Uh, onboarding remotely is always hard, but I think what's unique about these circumstances is that, so for example, if a company hired someone in September, there's okay. much higher than normal chances that person was laid off from their previous job. And that okay. could have been completely not due to performance issues. But if you were laid off, that's very hard emotionally. And you're just going to have much more anxiety starting your next job. Mm -hmm. And if you layer on top of that, while well, now you don't get face-to-face -face time, it's harder to achieve quick wins because you're remote. You don't really know who to ask what. I think organizations need to be really careful about helping new hires feel confident, feel supported, and then continuing to check in with them because you have these two factors, which is one, potentially continued remote onboarding. And then two, because the unemployment rate has been so high, these people might be coming out of prolonged periods of unemployment and feeling, you know, a blow to their confidence because of how they left their previous job. It's interesting. I'll just say, I think you don't realize the degree to which um, you might rely on your own kind of memory when you're working remotely with people, if you've known them for a while, if you have had a job for a while, the degree to which you you have a feel for those people. What do they expect? What do they like? What do they not like? How do they act? What do they, you know, whereas somebody who is hired during a pandemic, they're never meeting maybe in person the person they're working for. And so or with how, how do they have a feel for who you are? Yeah, it's, I'm also curious to see if once we start going back to offices, if there's a lot more job switching because people don't want to go through that remote onboarding process right now. And then the second trend that I've kind of seen is people also, because of everything that's happened over the last year, feeling much more like they want a strong sense of purpose in their huh. work. And I've heard both of those things, like because of the pandemic, it's made me refocus my priorities. I want to give back. I want to just feel a deeper sense of meaning in the workplace but I don't want to leave yet because I don't want to remote or onboard remotely. Um, so I'd also keep an eye on, huh. you know, how people move, switch jobs in, huh. in the next year or so. And Nick, what are you going to have your eye on? I'm going to have my eye on the importance of good management of HR in particular. So I'll tell you a story to highlight this. So I spoke to Marissa Mayer about a month ago and you, I don't, don't even remember her, but she was the CEO of Yahoo. <laughs> I do. I do. Back, yeah. Yes, back right. in, um, 2012, 2013, and I contacted her. It was great because she replied. Eventually, said, "Look, I'll talk to you. I'm not. I'm being bombarded by journalists, but as a Stanford prof professor, you know, happy to chat." And so, I ended up in a very long discussion. That was really interesting. She said that you know she was famous for banning working from home in Yahoo in 2013. Yes. But she said, "Look, the the issue is." You can think about when you manage people, you can manage people based on the inputs or outputs. So 
if you manage people based on inputs, it's a bit like what Liz said earlier, that it's that management by walking around and making sure you can see people at their desk, see their typing at the keyboard, see mm -hmm. they appear to be physically working. They're going to be physically there to watch them. Whereas if you manage people based on outputs, which is what, you know, we all pro probably want is for me, for example, am I teaching well? Am I doing writing good research? Am I, you know, being constructive and helping the university? It's what you perform. Right. Now, if you're managed based on outputs, it's relatively straightforward to have you work from home because I'm still just going to assess you on what you do. If I manage you based on the inputs, it's a horror show because I used to basically snoop around the office and make sure you're at your desk. Now you're at home. What am I going to do? And of course, the companies right. that do that have fallen back on this awful surveillance software. So there's stuff that records, you know, every keystroke and takes random mm. snapshots of your screen, etc. Because, you know, that's their second best. So working from home has really accentuated the importance of good HR systems and particularly evaluating people based on outputs. Because if you have that, you're much more flexible. You can have your employees at home and you're comfortable and relaxed because you're just telling them, you know, do whatever you want. But as long as you produce what you needs to be done. And I, you know, I may be flexible because if you have young kids at home, I'm aware of that. But whereas, you know, if it's input based management, you're, you know, you're at sixes and sevens, you can't do much. So I see there being already it's happening a big increase in emphasis and companies putting in better systems on performance management and HR because it's become substantially more critical now and will continue to as we have a, a much higher degree of working from home. Hmm. Nick Bloom is professor of economics at Stanford University. Liz Fossling is the head of content at Humu. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Thanks for having us. That was great. And on our website, we've got more about Nick's research on working from home, why he has felt positively about it for so long, and why it's actually given him some pause right now. And tell us if you've got a really interesting work from home experience. Have there been unexpected upsides, unexpected downsides? You can find us on Facebook, Innovation Hub Radio. You can also email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org.